And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, July 19th. Derek Van Riper, you know, Saris here with you on this Wednesday. On today's episode, we will dig into a very big night of run production on Tuesday and discuss whether or not there might be a sign of things to come as uh, heat wave has pretty much covered most of the country. And as we know, warm weather makes the ball fly. The trade tips that we did not discuss on the Tuesday episode will be a big part of this episode. How do you get deals done? What actually moves things along and makes you a better trader? And we got lots of mailbag questions. A good question about Corbin Carroll's shoulder and his long-term health. A dynasty catcher question because of changes at that position with all the young talent coming in. Uh, we got a really fun pitch question about a Pirates reliever, so tons of ground to cover today. You know, how's it going for you on this Wednesday? It is a crazy day. Uh, my my broken, broken phone needs to be fixed today. Uh, it's long run day, and it's already super hot. I need to run as soon as this podcast is over. <sighs> it's one of those days. But it's hump day, so just get all that stuff done, and it's free sailing from there. <laughs> yeah, the, the heat is a problem everywhere, but it's uh, good if you like run production. As we saw on Tuesday, this was a stat I saw on MLB Central this morning. I actually get MLB Network at, in my house now. I have it available so I can watch I those shows. It. There can only be one MLB Network between the two of us. I think That's as long as one of us watches decided. it, <laughs> we'll get all the good things. So there were two things I learned from the show. Uh, one, Lauren Shahadi door dashed a tea and it cost her $32, which I thought was, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> well, you were the the donut door dash guy. <laughs> she passed me. She's taken the, the crown from me as the, the door dash champion. That's hilarious. And the other thing I learned was that there were 12 teams that finished the day with run totals in double digits. And that set the MLB record within the modern era, that's since 1900, but according to Elias, the all-time mark was actually 13 teams doing it back on July 4th, 1894, so I think that was America's uh, 198th birthday or so, Uh, I think that math might be a little off, but the teams were very different. The game was very different I'm no John Thorne, but I'm pretty sure back there, back then, you could like sort of tell the picture where you wanted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was sort of more like akin to uh softball. <laughs> like the, and I don't mean like women's, you know, D one softball. <laughs> I'm talking about more like beer league softball. Yeah. Where, you know, oh just put it right. I like it high. <laughs> Chuck and duck. Yeah. Chuck so, and Duck where they have yeah. to throw you strikes and the pitcher sometimes will ask you, where do you want it? <laughs> it's yeah, like, well, that's it's, fun. Uh, it's a modern record. And, you know, it's uh, it's related to climate change. It's definitely that's something that's on there. And I remember I, I got this uh, study came across my desk, uh, you know, in April. Um, this is a study in the American Meteorological Society, uh, the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. Um, and it was a study that uh, that looked at how much, how many home runs in the past could be attributed by uh, to global warming, um, and then how many home runs, how that will grow in the future. And it looked over sixty years of baseball data uh, with daily temperatures, and they found that um, the thinning and the warming of the air. Uh, had already accounted for 1% of the home runs uh, from 2010 to 2019. And they thought that 1% would grow to 10% uh, by 2100. Well, that's that's pretty far away. Uh, but it does point to the fact that uh, warm air, the ball travels better in warm air. And I think one of the most counterintuitive uh, things that has come up a bunch 
um, in my discussions of the Petco Park Factor situation and just discussions with people in general, um, the ball flies better in humid air. And I know that when you feel the subjective feel of humid is humidity is wet and soggy and thick, right? Like you're walking through like water, like, you know, just you're just sludge almost, you know, like if there's a sludge of air, that's how humidity feels like in Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta, like Atlanta in August feels like you're walking through sludge. You know what I mean? Uh, that's a that's a human interaction with it. It has to do with just, you know, you're trying to sweat and what it's like. The ball's interaction is water molecules are lighter than air molecules. Just on the sort of on the on the on the smallest level, on the atomic level, they're lighter. And so the more water molecules are in the air, the more there are lighter molecules in the air for the ball to sort of pass through. And so you may think it's a super muggy day. The ball's not going to tra- travel far. In fact, uh, the truth of the matter is the muggiest, warmest uh, days. Oh, Atlanta on July 19th. Did you watch that game? That game was nutty. The game was all over the place. Oh, my God. Just homer after homer after just. I mean, it, it interacted. There is an interaction with, with the current rules, I think. And, and this is the interaction, I think. I've seen some evidence that, you know, there are some injuries that are mounting. So we 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 covered the pitch clock and injuries. And there was a big spike at the beginning of the season. And there was a big disagreement about whether or not that spike had to do with the pitch clock or not. And I, I, I tend to think it kind of did because we had a whole month called spring training of people trying to get used to, this, to the pitch clock. And I think that that first wave was people being like, oops, uh, that was, you know, I'm, I'm not used to that and getting hurt. Then uh, things have normalized and it looks more like a normal season since then. But now we may have a second spike where there's the accrual of fatigue over the season, which is going to be higher than in past seasons because of the pitch clock. So if we start having more injuries uh, again and, and sort of more than usual July, August injuries, you're going to have a thinning of the rosters, a thinning of the pitching staffs. And so that game in Atlanta, who started it? Elder did Elder start and get whooped? It was Elder against Zach Davies, I believe. So what what was Elder in the Atlanta rotation to start the year? Like a afterthought, eight, seven or eight, yeah. So you're already on your eighth starter, and there and Davies is was maybe fifth or sixth, but you know he's he's up or down. He has good seasons, he has bad seasons. This was not a good pitching matchup. It's one that I would have taken the over on, and then it just went south after that because. They didn't even know whether to use their good relievers or their bad relievers because it's the third <laughs> inning and it's like eight to seven. Well, are we are we already going to go into the like, you know, Iglesias, you know, the, the, the A plan or are we just are we in the C plan, the B plan? What plan are we on? So like Michael Tonkin is out there, you know, it's just like uh, it just it just devolved. But even I guess near the end, some good pitchers got hit too. Iglesias got got uh, beat up and. I mean the the end result sixteen to thirteen is that's a that's a football score. So uh, and it wasn't it wasn't the only one. I watched the end of the Giants uh, Reds game. That was nutty. There was just you know Wilmer Flores hit two homers. It's, I, I'm not saying Wilmer Flores is bad, but like <laughs> you know the, a two homer night for him. He got interviewed afterwards. Like you know that was the, he was the star of the game. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, I think that this is something that. I think we have to think about it as, as fantasy baseball players, but I think baseball as a league has to think about that because they're obviously trying to manage the interaction of homers and strikeouts, offense and pitching, and they can't come too hard down on the side of pitching and make it so hard to be a pitcher that as the weather warms and these home runs start flying, we start, you know, 16 to 13, 12 to 11 becomes a norm. I do think that fans... I mean, it's kind of fun in the moment, but do you like? Do you think that fans would adjust and just be fine with a game where it was like twelve to eleven on every night? No, because that turns every team in the league into the Rockies from a day to day perspective. Yeah, it devalues. Like, if there are too many home runs, it devalues the homer, right? And if there are too many runs, it devalues scoring a run. Yeah, and the league's corrective actions. It, it this conversation does kind of have two sides. It's like, what does Major League Baseball do about this? The 
planet's getting hotter. I don't think that's... Uh, yeah. Some people disagree with that. It's That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. At the, the corrective actions for Major League Baseball are doing things like pushing fences back, right? Making it harder to hit home runs. Which does probably put more balls in play, as we as we know. You make the outfield bigger. There's more that's space the for the ball to land. That's starting to grow on me. Honestly, there's a lot of people talking about this, and it's it's starting to grow on me. So that's an easy thing to do, relatively speaking. Uh, more stadiums with you know roofs for climate control. That's another corrective action. Pretty costly. Not always costly. easy to do. And even the wall thing is is semi costly. Yeah, that costs something, but at least compared to putting a roof on a stadium, yeah, that's uh, a little more affordable. And then you could start messing with the mound, doing other things. We've talked about that as having a lot of unintended negative consequences where pitch movement profiles are completely different in the types of things that pitchers can do. If you move the mound back, that could lead to a whole other set of problems. And then, you know, you look at the fantasy implications of this. I think the biggest one is something people have talked about for several years. We know that the summer months are the more offensively charged months. It's harder Offense to stream pitchers August, now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's harder to stream pitchers now than it is back in April and May when the weather's a lot cooler. So I, part of that might be saying, you know what, I'm going to go a little heavier with starters over relievers in the first couple months of the season, and then I'm going to shift you know, from a, a 7-2 to two split, starters versus relievers, to 6-3 and three or something like that. There's some actions like that that you can take along the way. If you are in leagues with pitching caps... I think that's a really good way to do it because we see 30, 40% of saves come off the wire anyway. So you go into the season and you just say, hey, I'm going to have, I'm just going to draft two relievers that I think are good. Maybe a little bit higher than some, maybe, you know, on the higher end, maybe some, I think that are really good relievers. And then I'm not going to really bother with the dart throws at the end uh, as much. And I'd rather have a bunch of starting pitchers on my roster to begin the season. And, you know, you're talking about 7-2, you know, you, you have to consider the bench, too. So if you had like a five-man bench, like if three of those are pitchers, I'm talking about going to the season with 10 starting pitchers and two relievers. Right. And then you're rotating from those bench options to Injuries. max out the, the two-start weeks and, and just cranking in as much volume as you possibly can. And then you pick up a closer off the wire, mm-hmm. you know, and then you're back to now you're down to nine and three. Um, I, I do think that works. It's, um, it's a little harder in leagues where there is no, uh, like pitching cap. Like for example, right now in my main, I've like, we have pushed our way to the middle of the pack and we're punting ERA at this point. So I guess we're okay with whatever, you know, like we're punting ERA at this point because we got in such a hole there. And the only thing we could do was, was work hard at strikeouts, but like, we threw Disclafani. You absorbed that one, huh? Well, we had a choice between Michael Grove at Baltimore and Disclafani with Disclafani, you know, had two defined starts. When you're in a money league, I think some, one thing that I think that people eschew too much or, 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 or don't, don't think about enough is if you're in a money league, third place pays. And if third place pays and you can look at the, at the, at your standings and say, man, I'm not going anywhere here. And you can make that decision earlier and just be like, okay, I'm probably not going to win this league by punting two categories. You know, it's just going to be hard. There's going to be somebody who's going to be good across the board. That guy has, look at his team. It's ridiculous. But if I punt two categories, I might do third and I still get my money back or I, you know, I'm in the money that's worth doing. You know, especially the the bigger the the money payout is, and I would honestly like I think that's true for me in dynasty leagues too. I think too often people have a team that's like a fourth place team and are ready to blow that up, and I'm like, mm, you know, and Devil Rejects, we're up to fourth, and I'm like, you know, third is good. It's in the money, you know. So let's let's just keep at it, you know. I'm not saying we're gonna trade Junior Caminero away. <laughs> but like you know we're not necessarily also going to trade away all our all our you know veterans and rebuild you know it's strange about days like tuesday and, and bad pitching performances i mean Descafani is a good one to to call out here because it could have been worse he went two, he gave up four earned runs gave up four hits didn't walk anybody struck out five at we least got the they K's. got him we they got, got five him. K's. <laughs> you got k's 
they, you're punting ERA anyway in your specific case. Yeah. But at least they got him out of the game. Oh, before Elder, they let that guy rot, dude. <laughs> yeah. It, sometimes it's even worse depending on how teams manage their bullpens, who they have available fresh. You know, I think maybe there are some teams that have more depth, more safety nets in place to avoid the worst of the worst blowups. I don't know how actionable that is, but compared to other blowups, that wasn't that bad. My son asked me an interesting question. He said, who's the best player on the Giants? He's already messing with you. He's a little young to mess with you like that. I said, that is a really interesting question. Yeah, how did you answer it? I said, they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> that had to lead to more questions. It did. We had a good conversation. It was a fun conversation. One of those uh, walks home from school. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. How do you identify teams that are like that? I, th- I think it's sometimes it's a sniff test. You know, who has who has better pitching depth, the Giants or the D-backs, without looking? Oh, the Giants do. No question. So who's more likely to get a 10 spot hung on them, Zach Davies or Ross Stripling? Yeah, it's it's got to be Davies. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of it is is just you can just sort of appraise it. But, yeah, I mean, in general, you know, what else can you do? to be prepared for this i don't know uh, you know we're not that great still at projecting home run rates for pitchers and that's really what we're talking about right now in august in july and august is going to be there's going to be i think there's going to be some good pitchers that get blown up brian Wu, after i gave him so much love and i had forgotten about the innings thing i was doing a true talent ranking we did a true talent ranking of brian Wu, uh andrew abbott and grayson rodriguez before his start where would you have that? You have to go. You have to you go back in the time machine on Monday. Rodriguez, Abbott, and Wu. Yeah. Grayson clearly at the top. I think I like Wu more than Abbott. Something just isn't quite right for me with Abbott, and maybe a lot of it's the home park. Well, Even yeah, though he's been yeah. getting good results. Also, the fastball is exactly average shape, and you know, I, I I'm getting the elder vibes where I'm like, I I don't understand this, and I don't think it's going to keep going. I think hanging out with you as much as I do has also shaped my opinion of Andrew <laughs> Abbott in significant ways. So yeah, I'll admit but you it. were the higher you were higher on Wu than I was when he first came up, mm-hmm. and I've sort of come around. And I was I was thinking about pushing Wu ahead of Grayson. Now there's an innings c- component, yes, and that came up on Twitter. And I'm like, I, I apologize. Wu is coming up on his innings. So if we're talking about this year, the rest of the year, it's clearly Grayson, and might actually be Abbott over Wu because Wu could get shut down any time. Um, but, uh, any case, um, Wu got blown up, uh, it wasn't all just bad pitchers, right? It wasn't all bad pitchers. I think Tarek Skubal, um, Skubal by the, the Royals. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <sighs> not supposed to happen. Uh, it, it was, it was bad all around. I mean, there were plenty of poor performances though. Uh, Alec Manoa, after looking pretty good against the Tigers, Still doesn't look right. I, I didn't. I wasn't in on that one when he came back up for auction. Yeah. So it, it was. It was a handful of different guys. I. I, th- I thought too. Part of the explanation for what happened on Tuesday was coming out of the All Star break. That was the fifth game day, right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three. So it was all the fifth starters in hot weather. It was more fifth starters, but it wasn't all fifth starters because there right. were guys that pitched in the All Star game and then resetting schedules. I mean, I think. Mm-hmm. The Mets-White Sox matchup was Giolito versus Carrasco. That game finished 11-10. So it wasn't all just the perfect storm of the bad pitchers all showed up and it was hot. It was it was a bunch of different factors. I would say that most of the bad uh, scores were in um, pitchers in hitters parks, right? Let's see. Great American yeah. Ballpark. Six, City, like Braves is a hitters park. Truist, Wrigley, Kaufman. No, it was it was a mix. With the well, Wrigley, it's all about the weather and the. Uh, was that a day game at Wrigley? Day game, Wrigley. I don't remember what time that game was on Tuesday. Offhand, I, I think no, I, I think it was a night game. Tigers Royals was in uh, Kansas City. That's, but that's one of the places that you're seeing the more elevated temps right now too. And the Mets game was at home. Was not in Chicago. Yeah, it was a mix of ballparks. It wasn't just the hitter-friendly places. I bet you a lot of people looked at Carrasco Giolito and liked liked that matchup and thought it would be like a 3-2 game. I think so. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about some trade tips. What actually helps you get deals done? I know you make a lot of trades because you send me questions and ideas and, hey, what do you think about trying this deal or should I take this back? Like We kind of go back and forth. It's nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of because mostly I think you want to know that you're not overpaying when you make a trade. That's a that's a common thread. We all have that. Like you want to make a good offer, but you don't want to make the the best, most friendliest offer of all time if you are into dealing. So, the longer you've done this, what have you found actually kind of speeds things up to the point of actually getting a deal from a few emails or texts back and forth to a deal that actually gets done? I don't know, man. It's it's hard. I almost put the F word in there. <laughs> it's hard, dude. It's so hard. Um, I find it is easier if you open up a line of communication that is not through the uh, app itself. Yeah, those are no good. Uh, you know, I do I do have a Discord channel for my oldest league. Uh, I should probably get back in there because just opening up a conversation, I think, is better than just starting off with the, the trade uh, offer. Uh, because in a conversation, you can kind of uh, characterize your approach. Um, and of course, you want to personalize that approach to the person you're talking about. So you want to look at their team. You want to look at their standings. You want to look at where they are. You want to look at their players, who's hurt. You know, you want to look at where they are, you know, in terms of youth, if it's a dynasty league, you want to look at all that. And you want to be like, okay, and you don't have to necessarily say it in your head or say it out loud to the other person, but in your head, you want to be like, I think this person could use an MI and I have Cattell Marte, who's 29 years old and is playing really well, but I'm just not sure that long-term he's a great, you know, dynasty guy. It's 12 team. I think I want to sell Cattell Marte and I think he wants an MI. So you, you say to him, you know, you open up a line of communication. You say, "Well, I'm not winning this year. I've got these. I've got a bunch of veterans. Uh, you know, do you see any mix? Do you see any possible matches?" And then you throw Cattell Marte in a in a list of with some other guys. You know, uh, and you hope that they sort of bite at, at Cattell Marte. But if they don't, you can still continue the conversation. And then all of a sudden, you're trading somebody else for something. But you you hadn't thought of it ahead of time. But they thought of it, and that makes it more likely for it to happen. You know, so open up a line of communication that's not in the platform because if i just send Cattell Marte and they just don't like Cattell Marte they're not necessarily going to go through the rest of my roster and do all the work that i did in reverse and they're just going to be like nope done and then you're like ah oh. then you have to like it's like a job application you have to like fall in love with another trade you have to come up with a whole nother thing fall in love with it send it get rejected ah oh. start it all over again <laughs> Yeah, the the job application thing is a pretty good analogy. The uh, the doing your homework part is really looking at the categorical needs of that other team, thinking about what just happened to their roster if an injury took place. Uh, doing the homework goes a long way. That's that's sort of the main takeaway that I've had is no matter who you're trading with and no matter what method of communication you like, just knowing what the other person involved 
might actually need gives you a much better chance of reaching a conclusion. I think the thing I see people do in my leagues that makes me kind of chuckle every time I see it is the trade block button. They go to the trade block and they say, looking for this, inquire within. And it's like, well, okay, that can start the dialogue, but that's just not doing any of the work. That's just saying, come to me with your best offer. And then usually I have found people that operate that way are really hard to deal with because they want to win a trade that they're not even willing to do homework for. So mm. that that tends to be a, a dead end sort of thing. But I've seen everything, man. I've seen people not look at rosters and just offer trades. You'll have a great first baseman, a great corner, and a UT that's also a corner. And the player you get offered just out of nowhere is another corner. And you're kind of like, I don't even have room to play that player. Mm-hmm. So, no, we can't we can't make that sort of trade. So the the early prep work is really important. And I think looking at – instead of trying to sell – someone else on what they need which is another kind of no-no for me like don't don't tell me how the trade helps me assume that i can understand how the trade would help me if it's a good or trade. ask me what my needs are you know yeah you can ask uh if it's a keeper league or a dynasty league i think it's fine to ask are you prioritizing picks right now are you prioritizing uh, minor leaguers are you prioritizing you know young major leaguers i think those kinds of questions are totally fine because the value in a long-term league comes from a lot of different places and each person has a different sense of how important each of those elements might be. Some people value draft picks a lot more than others. You don't want to miss that just because you didn't take the time to ask. And that's something that's a little harder to know if you haven't already made a trade with that person in the past. So that'd be a big one, too, is like finding out some preferences as far as what types of players uh, someone would want back, especially if we're talking about those long-term formats. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of what we're saying underneath this is, you know, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the hardest part. And that's when you, you know, you do the, the the work. and But the work also has to be on your end. Because, you know, I'm sort of coming to realize in this league that maybe nobody wants Cattell Marte. And, uh, you know, after a while, uh, people get annoyed. Oh, another Cattell Marte offer. Even if I'm like, I'm pretty sure you could use a second baseman and you're in the playoffs and I'm not, but uh, they just don't want the older player. Uh, So that's great. Then you have to turn up the pain meter on your side. And you have to go past Cattell Marte, who you could easily trade for whatever. And you have to go to the next player. And sometimes you have to, if you want to get what you want, you have to go two or three players past that first player. That's so easy to trade, you know, like this, this, this league that I'm talking about, you know, I would really like to rebuild and no one is helping me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I started with, uh, you know, trying to shop uh, Rowdy Telez when he was playing better, you know, um, and uh, I forget who else. Max Muncy. This is the league that I was trying to shop Max Muncy. And I was getting no offers. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to move on from Max Muncy to Cattell Marte. Nothing's biting. So I'm just going to have to move up the pain meter. And I think next on the pain meter is maybe Cody Bellinger. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that's interesting is first place has a stacked ass team. And they lost Mike Trout. I could go to that team with Cody Bellinger and probably get a trade done. Now I'm making the stack team even more stack. You're hurting yourself for future deals because you're taking away buyers. Yes. And I prefer to start with second and third and fourth place. Yep. Just because there are also political, especially in long-term dynasty leagues where you know each other, there are political aspects to trades. I could make that trade with first place and you know it could be good for me. And it maybe is the best thing to do and, and damn whatever. But what if it makes people less likely to re-up in the league next year? Or what if the people look at first place and they're like, ah, this league is toast. Like, look at that guy's team or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, there are there are these sort of secondary aspects. I'm not saying don't do the trade, you know, because people might be mad. But there are sort of long-term league health aspects that I do think about sometimes just because this is one of my longest leagues. This is, you know, I've, I've been the co-commissioner, you know. I mean, we're talking about 13, 14 years now on this team. So, you know, why make first place more stacked just so I can get something for Cody Bellinger when 
Cody Bellinger is not that old himself. Yeah, I guess uh, real quick, just since you brought up Bellinger, how much are you buying into it now that we're more than a half season through this sort of renaissance to his career? The K rate has stayed down 17.7%. That's the strikeout rate we saw from him back when he was MVP Bellinger. Like that was something he's done before. We got the power, we've got the speed, the walks are still there. The one thing that's a little weird, and it was still it was weird when we first talked about it maybe six weeks ago, the quality of the contact has not come back. So how much of a problem is that for a guy that, if he were healthy to this point, would be on a pace for about a 30-30 season or close to it? It's bizarre. I mean, this is the worst barrel rate of his career, and the max CV has never gone back to pre-shoulder injury days. He's not hitting the ball as hard. I tend to think that strikeout rate is nice, um, and the fact that he's still stealing bases is nice, but um, I could, I might, I'm, I'm, I might consider some offers. I might, I might go out there and offer him at 28. Uh, like, what would you project him for next year? 29 years old, that quality of contact, the up and down K weight. I think you would project him for. At least a 20, 21, 22, somewhere around league average strikeout rate. Somewhere around league average power. Hmm. So that would give him, like, well, the rest of the season projections are probably a good guide here. The Bat X. They're close to that. Bat X has 251, 318, 445. That's not a slash line for a player you'd get excited about unless you believe that the power speed combo, it's really, it comes down to the speed. If he continues to run and is efficient the way he has been, league average power over a full season for a guy that plays center field. Are we talking 18 to 20 homers? I mean, I think that's that's part of the package is like if the if the center field defense is slipping, he's 5% better than league average is the projection. And 5% better than league average for a center fielder is fine. For a first baseman, it's not. Right now, he's the 56th best defender by ounce above average, right there with Trent Grisham. So, looks like he has a couple more years still at center. Yeah, 79th percentile for outs above average, 79th percentile for arm strength, sprint speed's the 75th percentile. It looks like the other thing, if you look at the spray chart, too. I think for a too, rebuilder, though, it makes sense to trade him because he actually has value. You don't want to get not caught just waiting a rental. too long. Yeah. It's not a rental. I'm saying you can have this guy for three years. Four years, 2020. What are you expecting for a return? I mean, I just need, I'm going to need some quantity. And this is why major league teams do it too. Not only is it covering your ass, you know, quantity with young players, because you, you know, in these trade deadline deals, you want to have quantity because you want to be like, oh, I know we traded away this guy, but this one guy out of the three turned out, you know, and that's everything. So there is a bit of a cover your ass aspect to it, but there's also the opportunity to have two or three good players for one. It's a 12 team without CI and MI. So really what I want is one young player that could be better than Bellinger and some elite prospects. Mm, elite prospects. So you're getting down to like the 15 to 25 range. Cause you're probably not getting, Holiday or Churio, you're not getting guys like that back for Bellinger, I wouldn't think. You're you're probably looking more at maybe Jason Dominguez. We talked about a bit yesterday. Maybe Curtis Mead, Colt Keith, guys like that. Drew Gilbert. I would take Colt Keith if the other if the young major leaguer was good. And I'm I'm working off of James Anderson's list over at Rotowire. So yeah, guys that are kind of in the back of the top twenty five are probably your your realistic targets for the best prospect you get back. And then you have to make sure if you get two, maybe three other players back, probably two, I think you're getting three total players back and you could throw some stuff in to balance it out along with Bellinger, of course. Yeah, I can throw anything. I mean, I can throw all my old starters. Throw, and, throw Max yeah. Muncy in there. Yeah, right. Yeah, you get a free Max Muncy. <laughs> but that's that's part of the the other the other trade tip thing that I would I would work in is like the bundling of players sometimes works really well. It can work well on both sides if you have players that you've tried to shop individually and you're just not getting a lot of interest. Sometimes those players are enough to put a deal over the top. 
you kind of realize, oh, the league doesn't value this player that much, but that player is enough to bridge the gap from, uh, no, I don't think I like this to, yeah, okay, that's fair. And I think that shouldn't be overlooked. And I think that's exactly what Muncie would be in a 12-team league right now. Yeah, and don't be afraid. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, don't send your flotsam and jetsam for, you know, one player. Uh, in this case, I've, I'm building a trade around somebody I didn't really want to trade, Cody Bellinger. Uh, so I think that's that's a good starting spot. Now you're throwing Max Muncy on something you didn't want to trade. Now that's that's got some good value. No, I, like if I just take Max Muncy and add him to Cattell Marte and go back to everybody, <laughs> they'll see that coming a mile away. Oh, so I, I said no to Muncy and I said no to Cattell Marte. Oh, I'm going to say no to Max Muncy and Cattell Marte. <laughs> I'm going to bundle them together. Maybe that'll yeah. make it more enticing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think I think just being willing to uh, get to some sort of pain point for yourself is actually the one of the biggest things. If you're making a deal where there's just absolutely no pain for you, then uh, I don't know. Then you're maybe just ripping them off. <laughs> well, I think that going back to your point about the trade aspect of things being political, if you rip people off, they're not going to deal with you in the future. Like if you clearly win trades and offer garbage you can't go back to that well or you lose friendships over it in the worst case scenario you don't want that to happen either so you have to be mindful of of those possible outcomes speaking of trades we had a mailbag question about a possible trade so corbin carroll in long-term leagues is extra complicated right now because he looks like a superstar who would go easily in the first round probably going to go early first round for redrafts in 2024 as long as his shoulder is healthy. So we had a question from Chris, who is horrified at the shoulder situation. We saw two instances now in which Carroll took a swing, grabbed the shoulder, had to leave. He talked about thinking his season was over and feeling some numbness in his hand after no that. No way. I didn't yeah. know all that. That's what he said afterwards, but seems to be okay coming out of the all-star break. So Chris has an opportunity in a dynasty league where he just took Carroll as the 12th overall pick to trade Carroll and get back Julio Rodriguez plus a first-rounder in the first-year player draft coming up in the mm. winter or the spring. So Chris wants to know, do I have to do this? I really wanted to have Carroll on my roster for years to come, but this feels like a pretty safe way to avoid a catastrophe. We just talked about Cody Ballinger. <laughs> and the the impact of that shoulder injury is You can see it clear. clearly. Yeah. You can see it clearly in Cody Ballinger's career. He's not the person he was in 2019. Oh, man. But just look at that season from Cody Bellinger. Carroll couldn't even do better than that, man. He runs more, so yeah. I mean, he's, he, he could have like a 40-40 season. Right. Corbin Carroll has you know, Ronald Acuna-type ceilings. And honestly, in that D-backs Braves game, I got a real kind of like um, leadership vibe from Carroll. Like, didn't he try to steal home and got caught? I didn't see that. I was sort of half watching. He got thrown out at at, at home somehow. Maybe he went went on a grounder or something. But um, he was like stealing bases and, you know, he had a really good game in a game where the, he had to have a really good game. And I know I just got this vibe that like, this is a young superstar. That's like, this is my team. And you know, I'm going up against Acuna and I'm going to do all the stuff he does. And you know what I mean? Like that's how that's, that's the vibe I was getting from that game. Even when he made a mistake, I was like, I kind of liked that mistake. Cause he was just like, and they, they scored again after it and they, and they won the game. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm. I, I don't know exactly what happened to that play, so I don't want to mischaracterize it. But just generally, the vibe I was getting was like, "This is a this is a superstar coming in his own, um, and just does not think he doesn't belong. Has no questions about that, and is actually you know out here just trying to do every single thing he can do for his team to win." I get that same vibe from Rodriguez, but Rodriguez has actual an actual flaw, maybe that strikeout rate. Yeah, I, I the, think the it's strikeout rate plus the chase rate a little bit. He's he's lived at twenty five percent since debuting last year, so we're we're closing in on a thousand career plate appearances. Does not have the elite, ste- elite speed either. 
not Carroll level speed, but he's 47 for 59 so far as a base dealer in a season and a third ish. Yeah, remember when like late last season he just stopped stealing for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think the the approach, the way that Julio Rodriguez chases is one of those things that you just but his wonder. Added ball quality is a little bit better. Right. It, it's mm. it's picking nits in a great player. I think this is a very fair trade offer. This is one of those offers. This is one you look at and you say, I think I like that trade. And you could make it and say, oh, I kind of want to trade back. That means it's fair. It's balanced on both sides. I think it's it's pretty nice to get a first rounder on top of Julio because if you think about the days, like the, the immediate aftermath of that Carroll injury, everybody would have wanted more information. Everybody would want to wait and see. And I, I think I still look at that as a potential long-term problem. I Especially think, if it's happened twice in, one, in the season. I think I would take it. I don't think you have to take it, but I think I'm the kind of person that would want to mitigate that risk. More and, risk-averse. And would take Julio because I think you're still getting a guy with a tremendous ceiling. I mean, if you were starting a dynasty uh, league from scratch, they would both go in the first round. Right. So you're getting the guy that goes a few picks later plus a first round pick. And if you were doing this exercise four months ago, I think you would have found that everybody you have to have would have to taken Julio. to get Julio. Yes. It, it flipped just based on a few months. And they're so young that they could, they could be one, two on the board for a few years. They actually have, they both have that sort of ceiling. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think uh, I think you could be right. Um, the the I think to make this more helpful for anybody who's you know beyond this is just that um, that idea of you know making something so close that you're not sure. That's what I'm talking about with the pain point. You know what I mean? You know, this wouldn't be worth discussing if you know if it, if it was a lopsided trade then it wouldn't be worth discussing so this is this is an example of somebody there's pain here the pain is giving up corbin carroll's possible 40 40 season the the benefit is avoiding the risk of a bellinger type you know injury a, a catastrophic decline in power somehow uh, a guy who ends up being more of a like 15 to 20 homer hitting guy who still steals 30 bases while getting a guy who probably still has a 30 30 season in his in 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 his future yeah yeah i, I think it's a fun trade and I, I think what it comes back to is just a broader conversation of your your risk tolerance in long-term leagues. And when I think an opportunity like this comes along, I think it's okay to swap out of the risky situation. There's a short list of players that I'd be willing to trade. Yeah. To trade Coburn Carroll for. Julio's on that list, especially with the added benefit of that pick. So thanks a lot for that question, Chris. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Uh, Alex wanted to know, with the arrival of a lot of young catchers in the league, and there's a few more certainly coming through the system right now, 
what's the dynasty value of the veteran catchers like JT Realmuto and Salvador Perez? This particular league's a 16-team league. It happens to be points, but we'll make it just a broader conversation. Uh, of course, you got guys like Cal Raleigh, Cabert Ruiz, you got Bo Naylor, MJ Melendez, Shea Langoliers, and Tyler Soderstrom. So this is a position, Andy Rodriguez, Henry Davis, like a lot of young talent has come in recently does this start to impact the value of those older guys like Real Muto and Sal and throw Wilson Contreras in there as well uh, given the number of viable alternatives and given how tough it is to continue producing at this position as you move past the wrong side of 30 yeah uh, I think unfortunately the best time to trade most and I say unfortunately because I am a JT Real Muto owner <laughs> Uh, in our Devils rejects, he's our he's our catcher. I mean, he's he's and I'm not going to go in the tank. And with the speed, uh, I actually think he's maybe a little bit better of a long term bet than somebody like Sal Perez, uh, who's kind of your prototypical masher. Uh, but I think the right time to trade those guys is thirty. I just you know I, I it's a it's it's a thing that it's a position that puts toll on your body. You know, catchers debut later, peak later, and end their careers earlier. And I don't know if uh, that last bit I'm not as sure of, but I also know that, like, I Hall of Fame vote. And when we Hall of Fame vote, catchers are in a separate category as opposed to how many hits we want them to have. Uh, like, you know, 3,000 is a number you want a normal player. Like, if you want someone who's, if you're going to vote somebody into the Hall based on their hit total, 3,000 is still a number, Right. That's still like the number people realize. For catchers, you just want them to get to 2,000. Mm-hmm. And they're not even getting there anymore because Buster Posey did not make it to 2,000. I'm still going to vote for him to the Hall of Fame. But they, you got a guy there, then Buster Posey, who was great and then, you know, gone early. Maybe that's just a singular event, but it's also just, I think, points the needle to like Buster Posey's 36 now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and uh and he's been out of the league for for three four years three years so i don't know i i i would point uh to buster posey as being actually somewhat instructive even though he is a singular event it tells me that like some of these guys will make enough money and their knees will hurt enough and they'll just stop playing well, posey came back for 2021 because he's been out this is the second year that he hasn't played but right the point stands i mean this is a guy that I think if he had DH'd or played first base, he could still he could still offer plenty as a hitter. He he had something left in the tank and had other things in life that mattered more and decided to you know, go go do that and that's do fine. Things, yeah. Totally understandable. I, I think the I don't think the arrival of the young catchers hurts the value of the elite catchers for me because I I don't value them necessarily like entirely on the the scarcity question is that you know the supply of young players and i think part of it is it's it's what you were saying that it doesn't always happen quickly for catchers at the plate you you have guys that can become above average offensive players and they're not there yet we talked about mj melendez as someone that made sense as a mid-season by low his past calendar year numbers are really solid. 16 homers, uh, 71 runs, 70 RBIs, 7 steals with a 215 average. It's an 84 WRC+. Plus. I would bet that the next calendar year from MJ Melendez is a lot better than that because of the quality of contact that he makes. Um, so you could see guys like that starting to click in year 2, year 3, and that makes the position deeper. But the difference for me is JT Realmuto... He's still top five at the position in homers over the past calendar year. You mentioned the speed, 19 steals during that span. You're getting something that no one else at the position can really do now that Dalton Varsho has lost catcher eligibility in most leagues. And he does it while playing a lot more than most. So you get great counting stats. Oh, and he hits for average, which a lot of catchers don't do. So I think JT Realmuto is kind of a special player that people maybe don't necessarily appreciate outside of fantasy as much as they should. I think in the fantasy community, he gets plenty of love and it's deserved. I think he's going to age reasonably well for the position because he's athletically very different for that sort of position. But that cumulative wear and tear, it's coming for him. He's, he's at that point. This is probably the beginning of a hopefully a slow and graceful decline. So I would be more focused on that. He's at a 102 WRC plus right now. 
and he's projected by the bad X for 118 the rest of the year. Um, so let's say next year you project him for, you have to put some aging in there. You mm-hmm. project him for 110 WRC plus next year. And let's say he does that. That's still, you know, he kind of, he has alternated good years and bad years. If you look, he's 127, 107, 124, 108, 128, 102. So next year he's going to alternate back to the good year. If that's, <laughs> that's, you know, if that that's how it works. Uh, and he's, but he'll be more like a 118 and then. The next year in 2025, you might be 100 or 98 WRC plus. So, like, I think that just the bad years are going to get a little bit worse. And uh, maybe you want to wait till next year to trade him if he's if there's better, or you wait till the end of this season where the ball's flying better. For some reason, Philadelphia is playing like a pitcher's park in the one-year park factors. It's very strange. I don't know why. And balls, if you, even if you look at the stat cast park factors that are based on launch angle and exit velocity, balls are just not doing as well in Philadelphia as they were before. There is a new scoreboard that's 70% larger. Usually that would increase offense, from what I understand, from weather-applied metrics and Ken Arneson and, uh, and how wind works. But maybe in this case, it's actually blocking some wind that used to help the batters. Uh, in any case, I would assume that with the weather rising, Philadelphia is going to play more like a hitter's park. We're going to have, I think, in the next week, a 11 to 10 game in Philadelphia. <laughs> you know? So uh, and I think Real Muto will hit two dingers in one of these games. So, uh, you know, some of this is, you know, he's going to get right. But I would uh, I would consider trading him now just because of what I was saying about pain points. You don't trade JT Rumuto at 35 years old for, uh, you know, the 150th best prospect because you can't get any better. You trade him at 32 when he's still stealing bases and looks like he's going to give the other team value for three years for a really good prospect or actually a young player. Yeah, so I guess the the bigger question here is like, what does it take to actually get him or what do you get if you're trading him away and I think the balance in many situations is that people will say uh, this is a guy who's going to be 33 next March I'm worried the decline is here so I would actually look at JT Real Muto in Dynasty and Keeper Leagues as someone I'm more likely to trade for right now than to trade away mm. even though the consensus would be that this is the beginning of the decline and they might be right but I think you're going I think that's priced in I think you're not necessarily giving up an elite prospect anymore to get JT Real Muto. And that's part of why I think there's some appeal to actually getting him right now when most people would say, yes, I want to get younger at the position. And there are plenty of options to do that, right? I mean, in a keeper or dynasty league, if you were trading even within the catcher pool, you're not getting Adley Rutschman for JT Real Muto today. That's off the table. Could you get Cabert Ruiz and, a, and an extra piece? Yeah, and I don't think I don't think I would do it. I think I'd rather just I'd rather just see what happens with JT and then even if I get caught just having to replace him off the waiver wire eventually. That's probably better than what I'm getting back in the return. Yeah, hmm. Sal's a different I, case. He's DHing a lot more now, and Sal's already like Sal's already not gonna. He's not gonna bounce back and get you much more in the future. Like Sal's already like, yeah. Just, if somebody has interest, trade him. If you're rebuilding, you know he's not gonna be part of your future. Yeah, he's a year older. We're not seeing some of the peak barrel rates, even though we're seeing better stuff now, even age 32 and 33, than we saw for you know most of his late 20s. I think I would also, like if I was training away Sal Perez, I wouldn't pri- I wouldn't prioritize getting a catcher back. I, the one thing that I do do in most leagues is just figure it out a catcher. Mm-hmm. I don't want, uh, I don't want the very worst. So I'm not saying punt catcher. I'm just saying figure it out. Just grab somebody in that middle bit. You know, that's not the very worst catchers are, are the very worst offensive players in baseball. So you don't want to on your fantasy team. I'm not a one dollar catcher guy. I'm not into that. Those are those are the worst players in fantasy sports. Um, I think in fantasy sports, like maybe worse than kickers. And, you know, what I mean? like I think the one dollar catcher is just not a good deal. But, um, you know, like the Caber Ruiz is, you know, I, I, I like them. And Caber Ruiz himself uh, is turning it around, I think. Maybe, maybe finally delivering on some of that potential. Finally, it hasn't Give me been my that long. CJ Abrams, Gabriel <laughs> Ruiz. That could be. You could make that your guy. That's fine. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that question, Alex. Got a question from Josh. Josh wants to know. Uh, we've often mentioned that stuff is stickier than command year over year. His question is whether there's an in-season factor at play. When a command first guy is having a great year, Eflin and Elder jump to mind this year. Can we expect that command to continue for the rest of the season? In other words, is location plus more predictive in-season 
than it is year over year. Yes, it is. And uh, we, we have found that uh, we found value in Location Plus in season. I would say season to season, it actually is uh, fairly sticky for the elite guys. Uh, so you see George Kirby leading the league in Location Plus. He is likely to uh, be in the top five again next year. Aaron Nola, second, uh, has had a, a a great Location Plus number his whole career. Zach Eflin has also had a great Location Plus uh, every year, and he has a 97 Stuff Plus, so that's actually a decent combo to bet on year to year. The types that I don't like betting on as much are guys where the Stuff Plus is so low. Miles Michaelis has had good Stuff uh, Location Plus his whole career, uh, but I think he bounces around results-wise because the Stuff Plus is not as good. 89 Stuff Plus. Um and uh, you see it a little bit with Merrill Kelly, but already he has a 96 stuff plus. But uh, Braxton Garrett has an 87 stuff plus and a 103 location plus. That's the kind of pitcher I will bet on in season, but I will not bet on season to season. Yeah, I think that's a good application, though, based on uh, how the location plus tends to tends to work. Thanks a lot for that question, Josh. We had one more question for today. This one came from Brian. Uh, it was titled Dari Moreta Slider. I've heard <laughs> and seen it's weird. Any thoughts about this from Eno and if it should actually be called a slider based off how he throws it or how it should be based on the action of the ball? So. The best way I could describe it, like my my non Eno assessment was I watched it and I was like, oh, that's a gyro slider. Then I watched it again. I was like, wait a minute, that's got like this airbender. Moreta's a righty. It, it, it tails away. It's arm side. It's arm side movement, which is really weird for a pitch that gets classified as a slider. Yeah, it's really strange. It's a really strange pitch. It's um, it's not a screwball. Because with a screwball, you'll get more vertical differential and um, and even more horizontal movement, maybe. Um, but it seems kind of like a screw slider. Um, and at 85 miles an hour, it does have good velo uh, just on its own. Uh, you know, if it was a slider, 85 miles an hour is a bit of a benchmark for quality. Uh, but with that arm side movement, it's really strange. Um, and a couple things come to mind. One thing that we are trying to do in uh, Stuff Plus is um, uh, find a way to boost unique pitches. So Alexis Diaz, Yanir Cano, uh, uh, and Dory Moretta are on this list of people who throw a pitch that there is no comp. And in, in, in essence, Stuff Plus is comping shapes and 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 velos and things and trying to find other pitches like that and then bringing back the results and being like you know a pitch like this should get these types of results that's it's it's dumbing it down but that's sort of what the machine is doing uh if there are no results uh it just sort of assumes league average or worse um and uh so that's what you get with moretta we are considering a little bit of a thing uh, a bayesian boost so what we would try to do is kind of spider out a little bit past, you know, pitches that are actually that close to it and be like, what are pitches that are kind of close to it? Or what are some change-ups? And like, what, like, in fact, slider versus change-up doesn't matter in the model. We'll just look for pitches like that, move like this. But what are, are there some other move, ones that move a little bit like it? You know, are there, you know, if there's a, is there a way to like, uh, uh, sort of boost, you know, somewhat similar pitches. Domingo Acevedo last year threw a backup slider and had good results on it, honestly. Uh, but how long did it last? And I did just speak to a major leaguer that was, we, he brought up Dory Moretta to me uh, <laughs> yesterday and we, and he was a pitcher and we both were like, I, I don't know if it's going to last. Because at some point, if you also look at his mix as a group of pitches, all of his pitches have arm side movement. He has nothing that goes the other way. Mm. So if you're a hitter, you don't have to worry about things going in one direction. You can just start to keyhole its degrees of going in this direction, right? Then you can start to be like, okay, so now I'm just looking for a velocity band because I know everything's moving towards me, you know, if you're a righty. So I know everything's moving towards me. I'm, I'm going to look for things that are out over the plate a little bit. Why would I ever swing at anything in if they're all moving towards me? 
I wonder if he'll end up with some reverse splits in the long run. Yes, I think somebody like this would. <clears throat> he throws that pitch 61.2% of the time. <laughs> it's a ton of usage. But he's also got that four-seamer and the change-up. Oh, that's funny because Brooks, Brooks has a different number. Oh, what does Brooks have it as? Brooks has, well, oh, you know what? I don't. I have his all-times. Let me see. Yeah, okay. 57%. But but there are some similarities to the changeup, which is <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, but everything everything moves in, and and think about this, like the in Brooks in Brooks um, notation, uh, it's minus four on the slider horizontal, minus seven point seven on the changeup horizontal, and minus six on the four seam horizontal. So that's those are those are that's tight. Those are all moving in on you at about the same. It's not like one's minus 10 and one's minus two. You know what I mean? These are all like fairly in that same range. So they're all moving in on you to some degree. And the only difference is the 95 stays up, the 85 uh, stays middle, and the and the slider, the 84, goes down. And so, you know, I think you would just keyhole that velo. That's why he's throwing the slider 57% of the time. Yeah, working for now. We'll see if it continues to work for Dari Moreta. Good question, Brian. Thanks for writing in. He gives credit to Foolish Bailey for inspiring the email. So an assist on the email. I always like to see that. Uh, we are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder, you can no, get a subscription. now I have to run. Uh, sorry, man. You, gotta, you said you got to wrap it up, so I didn't want to run long. You got to get out there. I don't want to run. It's hot. You got to go sweat <laughs> it out, I guess. But uh, $2 a month gets you a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. On Twitter, you can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can find the pod at rates and barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>